So if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our series, 2020 Vision. Let's see what it would mean to see the world through His eyes. Thank you for standing in honor of the opening of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 9 with verse 35. After Jesus had already become very public with His ministry, says he went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Isn't that what he had said in the passage that Jeff read earlier as well? To the disciples after ministering to the woman at the well, the, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Open your eyes. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Father, we do pray that you would send out laborers. I pray that you would show us this morning, each and every one, the labor, the work, the job you've called us to that we might be empowered by your Holy Spirit and passionate about reaching our world for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, each one individually. I pray that you would speak to us as a congregation, as your family today, Lord, that we would respond with obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. April and Owen Beaver had a 16-year-old son who tragically lost his life. He happened to be an organ donor. I saw a video recently of how they finally met the man, his name, get this right, Chuck Shelton. Dr. Chuck Shelton was the one who was the recipient of their son's heart. And when they finally had the opportunity to meet Dr. Shelton, the the news stations covered the scene when they laid their ears on his chest and they heard the heartbeat of their 16-year-old son. In this doctor who was able, his life was spared, his life was saved, their son gave up his life But the life of this physician was spared, and he was able to use his gifts to minister to many, many others as a result of his life being spared. One died, his heart was placed into another that would continue to heal and serve, and that meant a lot to April and Owen Beaver to know that the legacy of their son, his very heartbeat continued on in such a way. Now, that's not a perfect analogy of what Christ did for us. Yes, God the Father gave His Son. Jesus died on a cross for us that He might come live in us, and we are to go forth and be His hands and feet. But Jesus did rise again, and He is alive today. But still, He has chosen to put His heartbeat in me and in you 
to be his life in this world. And during this time, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He has sent his Holy Spirit. Here's the question I have for us. If God the Father puts his ear to our chest, does he hear his son's heartbeat? If God the Father puts his ear to your chest and to my chest this morning, can he hear his son's heartbeat, his passion, what he cares about as it touches humanity? We need to get Christ's vision for the world. We need his heart for the world. We need his eyes for this world. And as we talk about vision, let's remember what we discovered last week in the message that the vision, first and foremost, has to be a vision that comes from God and it has to be his vision for people. Matthew's gospel lays out a wonderful vision for kingdom impact. It is the the royal gospel, it shows that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And right now at this moment, yes, he's coming again one day to establish his kingdom. I believe that there's going to be a literal millennial reign of Christ on this earth. And then I believe there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where Christ will reign. And he says, to whom much is given, much is required. We will reign with him for having been faithful in the things that he gave us to do. But for now, his kingdom is being established. His lordship is being established in the hearts and lives of people who trust in him, thus becoming a part of the kingdom. The church, according to Matthew's gospel, some of you have heard me refer to that passage known as the cultural mandate in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The church is to be a preview of coming attractions. We're to be living under the lordship of Christ in such a way that people get a a glimpse of kingdom life and hopefully and prayerfully discover how they can become a part of it. We have an understanding of how we're to view God in the scriptures, but I wonder this morning if we have an understanding of how God sees the world. Last week in our life groups, we talked about worldviews. But what's God's view of this world? How does he see the world? I think Matthew explains that as he even records the words of Jesus as he looks out into this world. We see the world the way Jesus sees it. Can we get to that point? Or in the case of many of you, I know the question is this morning, not can we get to that point, but can we get back to that point? Because not only am I this morning feeling very compelled by the Spirit of God to urge you, to beg of you, let's get his eyes for this world. But as I was preparing my message this week, so many times I was brokenhearted for those who have had his heartbeat before, but somewhere along the way, they lost their passion for this world. And so I'm praying not only for many of us to get that for the first time, but for many of us to get it back as well. Can we get back to that point? Can we truly sharpen the focus? And if we can sharpen the focus, how can we sharpen the focus? What was Jesus experiencing? Let's look at the text again. Verse 35 reveals to us his commitment to his ministry. A commitment to his ministry. The word ministry 
It's an interesting word, isn't it? When you hear the word ministry, you often think of those who are called into the ministry, right? They go off to some Bible college or seminary and they learn uh, to speak some kind of King James English. We get images of people living in a monastery somewhere. Those are the ones who are called into the ministry, right? The word minister just simply means a position of service. Jesus was committed to his position of service. The problem, when we think of that phrase, the word ministry really broken down, the etymology of that word, position of ministry, the problem, or the position of service, the problem that most of us have is somehow over the years, after the days of the Reformation and, and, and even into the uh, ecumenical and evangelical movements today, we have lost the word service and just focused on the word position. And so we see ministry and, and that, that ministry as a position that someone takes, and we get our eyes off the fact that all of us are called to minister. All of us are called to service because of the religious world or even because of the political world. We, we've gotten trapped in thinking of ministry as position. God has said to those in leadership, lead with a servant's heart. But he's given us all ministry responsibilities Serving. All of us are called to minister. Ephesians 4.11. I probably remind you of this too often, but let's be reminded again. God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then that last one is my responsibility, pastor teachers. For what? The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So all saints, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside of you. You are set apart. You are a saint. You don't have to die, and then years later, somebody votes you in as a saint. In the New Testament, those who were born-again believers were called saints. Now, the person sitting next to you may not look, act, or even smell all the time like a saint, but if they are born again, they are a saint. They're a saint. Joni, everybody tell you you're married to a saint? No, they won't tell you that. You're married to a saint. Now, he, Ben knows he's married to a saint, but sometimes, you know, you might need to be reminded. Every one of us are saints. We're set apart for God's work, God's ministry. Jesus had a holistic ministry. Look at it in verse 35. First, first note in his ministry, there was the priority of proclamation. Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news. Thank you. Gospel means good news. He was telling the good news. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way of salvation. There is hope. There is life. There is a doorway into everlasting life, and it's Jesus himself. There's good news, and he's proclaiming that good news. So see here in this text and throughout all of the New Testament, the priority of the preaching and the teaching, the evangelism ministry of Jesus, sharing the good news, sharing the gospel. Romans chapter 10 really hits on this. After explaining the gospel of believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is alive. It goes on to say faith comes by hearing in Romans 10, 13, hearing by the, the word of God, but we can't call upon the one, or whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but we can't call upon the one in whom we've not heard. And we can't hear unless somebody tells us. And people aren't going to tell it unless they're sent goes on to quote the Old Testament, how lovely 
on the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news. This was the priority of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was the proclamation of the truth of the kingdom. And it's the priority. I enjoyed meeting with our Discovering Trinity class this morning. It's a priority. It's the number one core value we have as a church today that we take this word and not only learn it ourselves, but that we share it with others. And so the proclamation ministry was a priority in the life of Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, would tell Timothy the same thing. You know, above all else, Timothy, what are you, what are you supposed to be about? Preach the word in season, out of season. Preach the word. There's going to come a time where people don't want to hear sound doctrine, but preach it anyway, in season and out of season. But notice there was another aspect. We might refer to this as the holistic ministry of Christ. You say, well, do we minister to the physical needs people have, or do we just kind of share the gospel? The answer is both. What else did he do in this text? Go back and look at verse 35. Not only was he preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom, it says he was healing every sickness and every disease among the people, literally every kind of sickness, every kind of disease. He was ministering to the physical needs of the people. This reveals a couple things. First of all, as Messiah, it was revealing that his power was on his ministry but even above and beyond that, it was revealing that our God is a loving and compassionate God that cares about every little detail that touches our lives. And when it gained their attention, what did he do? He, he proclaimed the gospel. It opened up more opportunities. What happens as a result of this ministry? See, he had been doing this for some time. In verse 26 in the same chapter, if you'll look back a few verses, as a result of his ministry of the preaching and teaching of the gospel, even people like Matthew coming to faith in Christ and Jesus sitting with, with those that the world had certainly labeled sinners, and rightfully so. It says the report of this went out into all of the land. His ministry of compassion had touched so many people that everybody was beginning to hear about, man, God is on this man. They may not have grasped the fact that he truly was the Son of God, but they knew he certainly loved and cared about people. And so the report of this was getting around. He had even raised a girl to life. He was caring and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, and word was getting out about it. But listen, there's a greater sickness than physical illness. There's a greater sickness that every single person in the world has been struck with. Look back a little bit further back than verse 26 to verse 11. This is part of Matthew's testimony, how he came to faith in Christ. He went to Matthew's house, he's hanging out with those who don't know God. And he says, Matthew writes, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, you know why I'm hanging out with them? It, by the way, it wasn't that the Pharisees and the scribes and all the other Jews, it wasn't that they weren't sinners also. It was that these people understood that they needed a savior. He says, they, they know they're sick. 
and they have a sickness that's greater than this girl that had to be raised to life, who had experienced death. They had a sickness greater than anybody else he had laid hands on to restore their sight, to take care of internal and external illnesses. He said the greatest disease is sickness, and that's why I'm hanging out with these folks is because I'm giving them what they need, the message of the gospel, the good news. And so both are necessary. We have two extremes today. Two extremes. Many mainline ecumenical denominations have gotten into what they, when they refer to missions and ministry, it's all about social ministry and care ministry. And so they're doing wonderful things like giving people water to drink and food to eat. And they're giving tuberculosis shots. And they're ministering and doing missions in a lot of places that need food and and need physical ministry and need social ministry. And all of that's important, but what's happening in most mainline denominations today is they're doing all that, but they won't dare say, oh, by the way, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They won't dare say, you've got a greater sickness. See, it's become politically incorrect to say that without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a sinner condemned to hell, separated from God forever. So they leave that part of the message, the unpopular part of the message out, and say, look, we just want you to know that we love you and God loves you. And that's all fine and dandy, but they may spend eternity separated from God, knowing that somebody loved them enough to give them food and drink and care for their physical needs, but not the most important needs, the spiritual needs. The other extreme, many of us in evangelical circles kind of fall into this, and that's that we, we understand the need of the gospel and, and the priority of that, but we don't see as many doors open because we're like, you know what, we've got to get them a good dose of the word, and we, we've got the Bible in hand, and we're ready to bust them upside the head and tell them that what they're doing is sin, and it's wrong, and they're going straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going to be in trouble if you don't get right with God. And they're wondering, can I believe this message? And the reason they're asking whether or not they can believe the message is they don't know if you love them or not. They don't know if you care about them or not. See, here's what holistic ministry does. It says, you know what, we're going to, in a Christ-like manner, care about the physical and the external needs that people have. Because in doing so, we can let them know God loves them and we love them too. But we're also going to be sure that they understand their greatest need is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a relationship with him that is only possible through his son. Both are necessary. Listen, I remember when I was to that point where I knew it was time to propose to Tina, to ask her to be my wife, and, and, and I began to do a little work. I began, to do a little, I began to do some good works. You know, I called up her parents and said, hey, don't tell Tina, but I want to meet you for lunch. And I remember going there and Took them to lunch in Burlington, North Carolina. Nice restaurant. We're eating lunch. Just me, Tina's parents. She didn't even know about this. Didn't know this was going on. We're having a meal, and, and I'm talking about things and enjoying the conversation and a little nervous. And finally, her dad just kind of broke the ice. He said, son, you got something you want to ask us? You had to know Tina's dad. And uh, I was like, yes, sir, I do. I want to know if I can have your daughter's hand in marriage. 
see uh, feeding them, well, that was wonderful, and the fellowship and hanging out with them, uh, great context, beautiful moment. But he reminded me, you need to get to the question, right? Don't you have something to ask us? Same thing. I remember, so I, so I had my, my mom, when we came to Georgia, I had her put the ring and some cheese and crackers and because we're good Baptist, sparkling grape juice, not champagne, but sparkling grape juice, sparkling cider, and some wine glasses in a picnic basket. And you took her, to, some of you have heard my story, took her to the church camp where I received Christ because I wanted to make the second most important decision where I made the first most important decision. Got all the works in place, did all the driving. But listen, there had to come a time where I got around to the question. I said, listen, all of this was fun. All this was in place. We did, you know, the, the, the cheese and crackers and sparkling grape juice and all that was wonderful, but big boy, you're going to ask the question. And I got around to asking the question. You say, well, of course you were going to ask her parents if you could have her hand in marriage. That was the purpose. Of course you were going to ask her to marry you. That was the purpose of all of it. But listen, there are so many people doing social ministry all over this world. Physical needs are being met in in lots of wonderful ways, but we're never getting around to the point of doing all that. And that's asking the question, do you want to invite Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior? He died for you. Are you willing to live for him? Holistic ministry says both are necessary. And we've got to be sure that we're about both the physical and the spiritual. Secondly, as we see through his eyes, we see a compassion for the multitudes. Look in verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he felt compassion. By the way, notice that this feeling of compassion followed the commitment to ministry. You say, why is that important? Because most of us just pray for compassion for the loss, the hurting, the dying, the suffering. And we'll even sing a song like the the Brandon Heath song we did just a moment ago. Give me your eyes, Lord. Lord Jesus, I want to go on a mission trip, so just give me a heart for those people in Haiti, those people in the Dominican, those people in India, those people in China. God, just break my heart for those people. Listen, you know how you can get a broken heart for the people in China? Go to China. You know how you can get a broken heart for the people in Haiti? Go on a mission trip to Haiti. I never had a broken heart for the people in Haiti until I went on a mission trip to Haiti. Teenagers that went with us to the Dominican Republic last year, when did you get a heart for the people in the Dominican? We tried to get a heart before we left, but when, did, when, were, when was our heart broken for the people in the Dominican? It was while we were over there. See, we, we all the time say, Lord, just, just break my heart for these people. Give me compassion for these people. And God says, listen, if you will be busy about your ministry, you'll get a heart for them. If you'll commit to his ministry, you will receive his compassion for the multitudes. It's an action showing compassion, not just a feeling. The feeling often follows the actions. Why did he feel compassion? What did he see? As we learn to see through his eyes, what did he see when he looked at the world? Notice it says he saw that they were weary. Some translations may use the word harassed exploited. We live in a world where most, if not all people, are somewhat, are very vulnerable and exploited. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul warns Timothy, hey, in the last days, perilous times are going to come. 
People are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They're going to get caught up in all kinds of crazy things. They're not going to have respect for their parents. And as he's laying out what days are going to become like in this world, he says, and you know what? There's going to be a lot of women that are vulnerable, and because of their vulnerability, they're exploited. There's going to be a lot of, of exploitation going on, and we see that in this world today. And when we see people being vulnerably exploited, it should break our hearts as it breaks the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said they were weary, they were harassed, they were exploited. Then he uses the word scattered. The the Greek for scattered, ripto, it just means thrown down. People were cast down, they were thrown down. They felt broken and beat up. It wasn't just scattered, they were here and there. They, they, They literally, it's the same word used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, when Judas betrays Christ, and he receives his silver coins. What does he do with those silver coins? When he feels guilty about it, he, it says he just kind of throws them down. So they were scattered, but they were, they were thrown down. And people in this world that are precious and valuable in the sight of God, many of them feel thrown down, scattered, rejected, broken. That's how Jesus saw people. Luke chapter 4. There's a demon-possessed man. Jesus comes on the scene and says the demons threw him down. People are battling demons of all kinds in the world today, and they're, they're thrown down because of it. It's the same word that's also used when Jesus says that if you offend the children, you'd be better off to have a millstone around your neck and thrown down into the water thrown down into the sea. And there are people in this world that feel weighted down, thrown down, burdened. That's how Jesus saw them, weary and scattered and thrown down. The image that comes to my mind when I see this, maybe because it's been on the news this week, but the Boston bomber, the, the one who bombed the Boston City Marathon, last year, is on trial, and, and the, the U.S. has said we're going to go for the death penalty because we said this was a big deal, this was a terrorist threat, and I begin to see the images of those who were thrown down, even some who lost their lives, but those who were thrown down and scattered in different directions. That's how Jesus sees this world. That's what sin does to us. And some were running to their rescue, and that's what he's called us to do spiritually, is to see those who have been bombed by sin and thrown down. And he says, church, Christian, you're to run to their rescue. Jesus saw people that he saw sin had gripped them and thrown them down, and they were worse off than they even knew. What's throwing people down today? If... The author of Hebrews had to tell us to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us, then, then obviously different people struggle with different sins that kind of keep on thrown down. They're born with a sin nature separated from God, but, but there seems to be certain sins that just kind of keep people thrown down again. Maybe it's a drug or a drug and alcohol addiction. Maybe it's sexual behavior, and here lately it's become even more homosexual behavior. It's an affair being involved in a relationship that God did not intend. It's a temper 
that someone can't seem to shake. So the Lord Jesus is looking at people and he says, you know what? They think this sin brings pleasure. They, they think this sin brings fun. But what this sin is doing in their life is it's throwing them down. It's casting them down. And it will get a grip on you and it will body slam you. And, and we want to, as the church, I understand, sometimes we want to come on the scene and we want to condemn that. Let's keep in mind a couple of things. Jesus came on the scene, what, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be ultimately thrown down, but have everlasting life. Remember verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So it's not our job to throw people down. Now, listen, some people take that verse out of context and say, that means that we're not to be calling sin, sin. That's not the case. He goes on to say in the very next verse, the world stands condemned already. But because they haven't believed in the only Son of God. They stand thrown down already. So our job as the church isn't to go out and find everybody who's involved in sin and and slam them down, to throw them down, to cast them down. It's to understand that sin has already done that. They already stand condemned. Our job is to go out through the love of Christ and begin to lift them up and to rescue them from the situation they're in. Jesus had compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed the good shepherd, the Lord himself, to come into their life. Sheep without a shepherd, no moral compass, no righteous leadership. That's compassion for the multitudes. That's seeing the world through his eyes. And finally, I want you to see that he responds in a unique way. He didn't say, I have come on the scene and I will always... Always, always be visible, seeable, touchable like this. No, he says, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's the call to the mission. The call is for more laborers. He said, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. It's more people getting after it. More people getting in the game for God's glory. More people, as I mentioned at the beginning, getting back into the game because my heart breaks not only for those who haven't discovered their ministry, my heart breaks for so many who once had a ministry who have seemed to abandon it. Can you see what he sees? So many people hurting, sin sick, broken, thrown down. Each one representing someone for whom Christ died. We look at this world and we throw our hands up as a church. We look at this world and rather than recognizing our calling to this vision, our calling to this mission, we look at the world and we throw our hands up and we say, good night, what a problem. Man, this world's messed up. And I believe God wants us to look at this world and say, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to let God's light shine in this dark place and show his love biggest problem. Jesus didn't say, the biggest problem is a lack of receptivity, did he? He didn't say, you know what? That's just some hard fruit to pick out there. No, he said, the harvest is plentiful. Just not enough people to go pick the fruit. Not enough people to go point them to Jesus. 
biggest problem is not enough laborers because we haven't gotten in the game or we got in the game at some time and we've bailed out, let go of our responsibility in this call, this mission. If heaven is real and hell is real and Jesus is real, and he died that we might have a relationship with God, what we were created for to begin with, then how can all of us not see our responsibility to this mission? If you don't have a vision for people, if you don't have his vision for people, if you don't see people through his eyes, you'll lose your sense of calling. If you lose your sense of calling, you lose your heart. You won't hear his heart beat in your chest. Lose your passion. May 22nd, 2010, an Air India flight crashed in India, Mangalore, India. 158 people lost their lives. When they went back to listen to the flight recorder and everything else, they found out that the pilot who was well-trained, who knew what he was supposed to be doing, had simply fallen asleep. He had fallen asleep. And when he woke up, it was too late. Well, the plane was on autopilot. It was time to land the plane. But he overshot the runway, and 158 people lost their lives. Can we be better trained? Sure, but that's not the problem in this 21st century. We have more tools to understand the gospel. We have more equipment to learn how to share our faith than ever before. The church, because of things like the internet and all the other resources we have, many of us have as many books in our home today as a library may have had many, many years ago. We have all the tools. We have all the training. Most of us are equipped. Listen, if you remember how you came to faith in Christ, you already know enough of the message to point somebody else to faith in Christ. You know what I think the biggest problem is? The church is asleep at the wheel. As Jeff mentioned, 80% of this county will not be in worship today. 68% will not even profess identity with a local church. And even though a lot of them claim to be Christian. I have to agree with the old songwriter Keith Green who said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. A lot of people that claim affiliation, maybe they think they're going to heaven on their mama's coattails, I don't know, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The church can't afford to be asleep at the wheel because we'll give an account. I don't know about you, but when God puts his ear to my chest, I pray that he'll hear his son's heartbeat. Would you bow your heads with me?